But that's all right. We're going to get there. The, the rest of Genesis ain't going to go nowhere. But tonight we're going to begin uh, day number seven. And if you got your booklet there in the back, it's hot off the press and everything. Uh, but day number seven, we've got on there kind of the title of day seven of creation is Looks Like Heaven. We're going to see how day number seven is a, a day of rest and what that actually means for the Lord as well as for us and what it pictures for the rest of Scripture and for mankind. We're going to see why it's important because as we're going to address early on as we begin this is that every, every day of creation, has been pointing to something greater. And I believe that this day especially does as well. It really brings everything full circle. It brings everything uh, back to really this hopeful place of seeing that, um, that God is not just in control of creation, but that He's in control of everything from there and all the way to the last end of the bookshelf. Right? He's the, the beginning and the end. He, he knows all things. He's before all things. And He he, he, he's uh, one that we can trust because of these truths that we're going to see tonight. Well, I want to read for us chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which covers uh, day number 7. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it uh, he had rested from all his work which God created, and made. Now let's look here and begin in verse number one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. If we look back, chapter one is the broad view, if you will, of the creation of the heavens and the earth. How do I know? It says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And, and uh, we even see other translations. I believe New King James includes the, the S on heavens, but neither here nor there. What we find is that the heavens and the earth were finished. That includes everything that is in our stellar planets, uh, our universe, every molecule on this earth, every atom, everything that is made. This encompasses everything. As well as we're going to see here in just a, a little while, this encompasses everything that we can see with our, our eye, everything that we can see with a telescope or that we can only see with a telescope, and everything that we can't see with a microscope, the smallest, tiniest of things, the the spiritual things, the invisible things to our human mind and to our human eye. Well, we begin and look here at the heavens and the earth were finished. One commentator writes, he says, they could have been finished in a moment as well as in six days, but the work of creation was gradual for the instruction of man as well. Have you ever thought about that? Sitting in Sunday school class as a little kid, my mind worked a little bit different as a child. I, I always thought as we're going through days of creation, well, if God's God, why couldn't he have just done it all just like that? Well, he could have, couldn't he? But why does he do the things that he does and, and record them here in this word? Well, he doesn't do so for his purpose, so that way he's reminded of what he did as a sort of history log or a, a journal, so that way he doesn't forget what he's done, but rather so that way you and I are instructed about who he is and what he can do and the fact that God did all these things in an orderly fashion. Because think about what the six days so far at this point have established. They've established the way our universe works from the formation of galaxies, planets, stars, solar systems, uh, the way our oceans and tides work, the way the creatures go about in their habitats and ecosystems, their drive, their motivation, uh, the different kinds of animals uh, and how they are to reproduce, the goal of nature. I mean, so many other things that, that go on and on and on. We see the importance. And he could have done it just like that, but he does so orderly and in this way so that you and I would see 
the grandness of all of who he is. You and I truly could spend all day and every time that we meet in church talking about the grand scope of all of God's work and all of God's will and power and character, and we would never exhaust it. As a matter of fact, I believe it should be a challenge for us throughout our life uh, that the more that we should study God, the, the deeper we will grow in God. It is not necessarily about studying one specific doctrine or trying to be an expert in this or an expert in that, because I would say that there are no experts. There are those who call themselves experts, and then there's the rest of us who know we're just dummies saved by grace who are trying our best. And that's it. What we look, though, is we just keep digging and digging and digging into who God is, and we will never come to the bottom. There is still yet this beautiful mystery about who God is and the fact that we see the record here, that thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Each day that was created from day one, two, three, four, five, and six, and we're going to see seven as well, has a higher purpose. Why? Because we find that even in the, each animal or each thing that is created, but even pointing to the, the crown jewel that we talked about of mankind who has a higher purpose. That we don't have the same purpose as just an animal which is to you know, procreate. We, we've got a, a purpose to give God glory in all that we say and all that we do. And you and I as believers in Christ, of course, have a higher purpose than even that. And that is to uh, spread abroad the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that all who call upon his name, he will no wise cast up, but that he will save them and save them to the uttermost and give them eternal life, not based upon their merit, but based upon what Christ alone has done. We find that this higher purpose in all of these days that God does is for man's good and for his glory. And as a matter of fact, everything in your life that takes place, whether you see it or not, is for our good and his glory. Now, when we look at the bad things in life, we go, how is this good? Right? A sudden loss of a loved one. Your car breaks down. You spill the whole pot of coffee. I mean, it could be anything. And you go, how is this good? I would say, we would say in, in our dictionary that it's not good. Maybe God would even look and say, well, you know, this is I mean, not necessarily good, but what is it? It is working a good in us. The moment that you spill the whole pot of coffee, what does that do? It gives you an opportunity, doesn't it? <laughs> it gives you an opportunity to react <laughs> or to respond. To react, meaning you throw the pot of coffee, get mad, kick the dog, blame somebody else for it, or say a bad word, right, or, or two. I, I don't know what you... That, that's reaction, isn't it? Or it gives us the chance then to respond. And they go, you know what? I must, must have not needed that coffee this morning. I must have, should have spent more time maybe in prayer or Bible study. Or maybe I should have got up earlier. It, it offers us uh, a time to respond by learning something. Uh, we tell parents this when I was in, in youth ministry and, and still carry this true uh, too, that... Um, Every moment with a child is a teaching moment, especially in regards to the gospel and to knowing who God is. Every moment is a teaching moment. Now, us as kids, the younger we are, the more we don't see how it's a teaching moment. And it's not until we get older that we go, that's a teaching moment. Yeah, I know, Dad, right? Yeah, I know, Mom, right? It's a teaching moment. But every moment is a teaching moment. And so for the Lord in our life, everything that he has given to us in this book from Genesis 1-1 all the way through is a teaching moment, not to teach us about ourselves, but rather to teach us about him so that we would see, well, this is who we are, this is who he is, and we're separated, so we must be more conformed to the image of Christ in order to get to be with him one day. And we see then, though, that each of these six days have taught us about one key thing, 
And it's the same thing that the rest of this Bible is about. And that is the redemptive history of mankind through Jesus Christ. We have found that literally every day, every act of creation has pointed to something greater, something higher. And the greatest and the highest thing that there is isn't even a thing. It's a second person of the Godhead who is completely eternal, who is God in the flesh, who is the one who would be the promised redeemer, who would be the the seed of faith, the seed of the woman to come and to crush the head of the serpent upon Calvary's tree. We find that everything points upward and Godward and Christward. We also find this truth that when we see the phrase, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, that means that at some point they had to have not been finished and begun, right? Meaning in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It points back to what had just been spoken of it's almost like in the Psalms where you see the word, you know, Selah, it's the pause and reflect, and here, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Well, if you didn't read chapter 1, go back and read it, or read it again. Get to know God more, get to see what He's done. But it reminds us of the great truth that we find, and that what God begins, God will finish, God will complete. I'll read for you a verse that, of course, probably comes to mind, and I'm going to read it just so that way I don't misquote it. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6. Notice the phrasing, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The idea that Paul is writing there to the church of Philippi is that the God who has begun the work in you, and he's dealing specifically with that of salvation. Salvation is a a three-part part, if you will, right? It is a three in one. Much like a trinity. Isn't that neat? Right? How God is a God of pictures here. Salvation. We have our justification, or our immediate salvation that saves us from our sins of the past, sins of the present, sins of the future. We are now declared righteous in the sight of God. Right? We take off our filthy robes of, of unrighteousness and unholiness, and he puts on uh, his robe of righteousness upon us. Then we have sanctification. This is our working out our salvation, if you will. It's our fruit of salvation. Then we have our glorification. It's the end all be all. This is us going to be with the Lord. We see these three come together. And who is it that initiates that first salvation, that moment that you were born again? It's not you. It's God, right? It is, we would not love him if he had not loved us first. And we see that it is Christ who initiates that. It is in Christ who, in us, according to Galatians 2.20, lives through us in our sanctifying process. This is why I've said a million times, and I'll say it a million and a half more times, that every bad thing that you do, it is your work. Every good thing that you do, it is not your work. It is Christ's work in you. Well, how about the glorification process? Is Christ in that? Absolutely, he's the one who has sought it out. He is the one who's bringing it to completion. It is the God of the Bible who not only creates, but then consummates and brings everything back together as it's supposed to be. So we find here, and I wrote a little note here. You can see it there. And that look, look good, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't see it, right? But here in parentheses, what I've got is, uh, I write myself little notes and graphs and stuff. It's just what I do. So um, it wouldn't make sense to you. It makes sense to me. But I've got creation and then an arrow pointing to the word consummation in, in parentheses. And on either side of those uh, parentheses marks here, we've got eternity and eternity. Why? Because God is eternal. From eternity past to eternity future. He always has been, always will be. That's who God is. It's his very nature. But in between, we've got what you and I call history, which is all that we know, which is in the beginning, God creates. And Genesis 1 tells us all about that. 
And then you and I are living somewhere smack dab in the middle of that Oreo sandwich cookie there, and we're waiting for the great day of consummation, that last cookie that you and I will know. And we can look forward to it because we know what it's going to look like. We don't know the, the timing, the date, nor the hour, according to the Scripture. But we do know the, the who's and the what's, right? We even know where the Lord will come back and all these things, but, but a lot of the other stuff is stuff we don't have to know, but we do know that we're in between that cookie. But that cookie keeps going, and it's going to get better and better, and it's eternity with the Lord after that great day. So this here points, as we see the, the finished work, that everything that was made was made ready to accomplish its purpose in procreating and giving glory to the Creator. Everything that was finished means that it's complete. It's ready to go. If you bake a cake, right, and you go and you pull out the oven 10 minutes before it's supposed to, and you test it, and it, or you do the first test, right, and you shake it, and it's still too jiggly, right, you know it, but you throw the toothpick in there just in case. You want to make sure it pulls out. You go, yeah, it's, it's not ready, right? So what would you say? Would you say it's finished? No, it's not finished, right, unless you like a gooey cook, a cake, right? Right? So it's not done yet. You've got to put it back in. Why? So it can be finished. It's not yet at its completion. And so you're not going to eat that cake that you can still see, you know, the, the egg yolks and shells in, are you? No, of course not. Right? It, you, you look at it in the, in the mixing bowl and you go, oh, that cake is ready now. It, it, no, you don't. You go, it's got to be put into the pan to get its shape. It's got to be baked for the right time until it is complete and done why because then that's when you get to enjoy it so the idea here finished is that now it is prepared for enjoyment whose enjoyment well as we're going to find on day seven god's going to enjoy it because god made it he's he's already looked back at each day says it's good after day six he says it's real good right It, it, it got gooder and gooder as it went along but who else gets to enjoy this it's made for man's enjoyment why because that's who he places in the garden that's what we place in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, to enjoy that place forever. And I firmly believe that Adam and Eve could have enjoyed it forever. But guess what? It didn't take too long because they had the possibility, potential to sin, therefore they did. And I would say the same thing for you and I. That's why heaven is so sweet. Heaven is going to be great, and, and eternity with the Lord is great, because first of all, He's there. Two, because you get reunited with so many people and, and, and the joy that will be there. I mean, we think we have joy if we have a good service or, or a birthday or, or all these things. That's nothing compared to the joy of heaven, right? We can't grasp it yet. We're not going to grasp it until we're there. But even more so, one of the joys of heaven is the fact that the work in us through Jesus Christ will be completed and we will get to enjoy him forever properly and purely with the right heart and attitude, and we won't have that potential of messing it all up and being separate from him again. Rather, we will be by his side forevermore to be able to perfectly and completely do his will as we were created to do. Because as we're going to see as we go through this chapter in the next, that man was created not to do whatever he pleases with the creation that was there, but rather to do what God has put forth. And what we see is the more that we enjoy God, what we find, when you enjoy God and fellowship with Him, right? When you feel that sort of spiritual mountaintop, if you will, why is that? Normally, it's because you're in obedience to His Word and will, aren't you? Right? You, you feel pretty close to Him. Let me ask you the, the opposite side, just to make sure you understand this. 
if you're disobeying God and full of sin and wickedness, do you feel close to him? No. Right? You feel like you're in a desert place. You feel dry. You feel uh, distant. You feel like you can't call your way back. You can't get back to him soon enough. Right. So we see that we can't truly enjoy God unless we are in obedience. So the greatest enjoyment of God is going to be in heaven when we will be fully in perfect obedience to him. And now we look at this. We find this truth that when he says it is finished, it means it's complete. It's brought to a completion, right? That cake is done. One commentator deals with this, that there is no evolving into something new. It's not here that God said, well, you know, my part's done, but rather he said it's created as it's supposed to be. What we live in today, about 6,000 years past this creation week, is not what it's supposed to be. As beautiful as a sunrise is, or the sunset is, or as the parkway is, or as the flowers are, whatever it might be, it's not what it's supposed to be. As beautiful as those things are, it's just a glimpse of what it could have been without sin. Can you imagine a sunrise without sin? Never seen one. Just a few days ago, there was a, a beautiful one, a picture uh, worthy, breathtaking, absolutely gorgeous. But yet it was still full of sin curse. As beautiful as it was. There's going to be a day where we won't have to worry about a sunset anymore. And we won't even have to worry about a, a sunrise because we will see the glory of God and all of his beauty and the beauty of the city which he will create for us to dwell in. Those who are called righteous, not because of our righteousness, but because we're clothed in his. And that's what we're allowed to enter in. And there will be nothing more beautiful than that. There will be nothing more breathtaking, nothing more spectacular, because it will not have an ounce of sin in it. The commentator writes about this. He says, no ongoing evolution is possible. God's created work was finished on the sixth day. Theistic evolutionists set forth the preposterous claim that God initially created and then set the process of evolution into action, continuing to this day. However, the very idea of theistic evolution is a patronization of godless secular evolution and science falsely so-called. Such foolishness did not exist prior to Darwin's popularization of his evolutionary hypothesis. Moreover, the next verse clearly states that God ended his creative work on the seventh day. There is a very popular idea today with most Christians. As a matter of fact, in most polls and studies asking people about basic Bible doctrines, the average Christian, and most Christians even, believe that God created but he used evolution to do it. To say that God created but he used evolution to do it is to take out Genesis 1 through 11 and to say, well, we you know, we don't really need it. It's just kind of an allegory. It's not really true. And that's taught in many a Bible college. And it's believed by many a believer. As a matter of fact, I've heard in many people who are trustworthy who are surprised at going, well, well, what about this? I always thought that, you know, well, you know, God created, but he just used that stuff that scientists said to use because it made no other sense anyway. I mean, they seem like it's real. They, they act so confident, but it is still yet a theory, and I would say it's even further. They're not teaching a theory, they're teaching a religion. It is a faith-based idea to say that there is no God and that we came about by chance. As a matter of fact, it's more faith to do that than it is to believe what we believe. I don't have, as one, one author titled his book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. <laughs> if you think about it, I don't. And neither do you. And praise the Lord, I've got enough faith it's not even the size of a mustard seed because I haven't moved a mountain yet. That's what the Bible says. My faith is small, weak, and frail. 
the faith of an atheist could certainly do much more than what my little faith can because they believe that nothing produced all of this. It's a faithful person. It shows us as well, though, that faithfulness or being sincere or being really true to oneself or beliefs does not cut the mustard. You either believe God and it's accounted to you for righteousness or you don't. What we see here as well is that God is involved not just in setting forth creation, but that he is involved in every atom and molecule of all of his creation. Which is why uh, we see that um, one little sin, if all that you ever have done, say you live to be 150 years old, and the only sin you've ever committed in that one time is you stole a a 50-cent lollipop, it is still cosmic treason, you've still stolen and sinned against a holy and righteous God. We miss those things. We, we totally take God out of the picture. And the reason why we do so is because we like the idea that there's this sort of pie in the sky or man upstairs who, you know, is up there for us when we, when we need him. But we don't want to think that he's so involved in all of our life because that would mean that we're accountable to him for all parts of our life, our thought life. The words that we say, the things that we do, the places that we go, the things that we bring in, the things that we have come out and everything else. We don't like that idea. It's the real reason at heart why an atheist or an agnostic is what they are because they don't want to be accountable. And it's clearly shown throughout Old and New Testament, specifically in Romans chapter 1, you can see man knows in his heart that God created and specifically how he created and the revelation of it is right here. There's no denying it. And you can look around. And science can only explain but so much, but they are even baffled at the understanding of all this. We simply trust the Lord and know that He is not just some God who used evolution to do such. I don't believe that because there's no place in Genesis chapter 1 where we found that, did we? And we spent plenty of time in Genesis chapter 1. We didn't find it. Unfortunately, it is popularized and used in subtle ways. There's a, a word of faith group that is unfortunately has about 80% good and about 20% bad, and they go by the name Hillsong. They're based out of Australia, Word Faith Movement, um, and a tremendous amount of other issues with there that's a a whole different day. One of their songs came out a couple years ago. One of the lines and the lyrics is um, that as you speak, basically the, the earth begins to evolve in pursuit of what you have set. The idea and the author of the song, the writer and the singer of the song, you can say, well, yeah, I believe that, you know, God made everything, but he did so using evolution, because why wouldn't he have? I mean, how could you explain everything else? Easy, right? We just dealt with it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 31. That says it. That seals it. That's enough. And the issue comes to something greater. It's not that we trust science more in the bible or that we don't trust science or this that and the other it's that the scripture for most of those who call themselves christian is not sufficient they want everything else to come with it we're not satisfied with just going or even being able to say and i don't know how many christians i know who have such a hard time saying and accepting the fact that i don't know or the answer is not black and white there's some mystery to it one of my favorite answers to give to people is i'm not sure The Bible isn't 100% clear on that, but one day we might know. And I believe, too, this firmly, that every question that you think you're going to ask when you get to heaven, you're not going (laughs) to. There's no question when you look at the king, and any time that we find someone who sees the throne of God, 
They never say, hey, but God, first, before I bow down and put my face in the dirt and put on sackcloth and ashes and worship you and crowd holy, 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 like the angels are doing around the throne, I had a question, hey, where did, uh, how did this happen? How did you do this? Because, you know, I, I looked and I just, I just didn't see it. You want to clear that up for me first and, and then I'll worship you? No, they're in absolute awe and reverence. Never do we find anyone else who says later on after they get up that they go, oh, hey, God, it just dawned on me. Let me ask you that question. No, they are constant, continuously worshiping the Lord because none of it matters anymore. Every question has been answered and faith has been made sight. Why, why would it matter? I believe this, we could do ourselves a whole lot of good if we said, if it mattered to the Lord as much as it matters to us, he would have put it right here. And the fact that he didn't, it's okay. And so we, we move forward here and we look at these words. These words of verse 1 introduce the completion of the work of creation and give a greater de- definiteness to the announcement of verses 2 and 3. That on the seventh day, God ended the work which he had made by ceasing to create and blessing the day and sanctifying it. And notice then in verse number one, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. All the host of them means all the host of them, everything. There is not some things that God made and then left up to chance the rest of it. Or is not, it leaves no room for a theistic evolutionary theory about God. A theistic evolutionary theory about God doesn't actually know the God or trust the God of the Bible. It is their own God. They like to take the God that gives us nice things and is there for us, but they want it done their way. Because what man does is man, being made in the image of God, wants to make God in his image. We see how we have that reversed? We, as we've just dealt with in Genesis chapter 1, we're made in the image of God. But what we do is we look at Scripture, we look at science, we look at ourselves, we look at our sin, and we try to make God into our image and make him look like, well, let's take the parts of God that we like, and that's what we'll focus on. We either take all of who God is or you leave it be. He is who he is. He's not this one time and this another. He's not the God of the Old Testament and then a different God of the New Testament. He is the one true living triune thrice holy God. That's it. He didn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those who do change are us, and we try to change the unchangeable God. That's what idolatry is at its root. The creation of all things is totally completed by day seven. We're going to see here, verses two and three, we don't find that God made anything else. Nothing. And we're going to get to that. He says, uh, Colossians chapter one, verse 16 and 17. I love these verses. It tells us, for by him, and this is referencing Christ, For by him were all things created. Notice this uh, lineup here. For by him, he's a source. By him, through him, for him, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. It's the order of all things. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, because he's eternal, right? That's my parenthesis note there. And by him, all things consist. It is not enough to say that God made it, wound up the clock, and let it go. It is that by every, everything hangs upon the very power and might of God. There is nothing in existence that did not come from the Lord. And there is nothing that would not be absolutely destroyed if God 
stop working or doing anything for it. If God ceases to be God or if God stopped working or uh, sustaining us for a moment, we would be obliterated. If God stopped for just a millisecond, we, the earth stopped spinning, the sun quit shining, we're toast. God remains God. God not only creates this earth and these heavens and these wonderful things that he's made, but he sustains it. And if God left the creation alone, it would have crumbled. You would say, well, did he leave it alone for so long that, you know, Adam messed it up? Is that what happened there? Or all these things. You could ask so many of your what-if questions that we could ask so many, well, how about this? Or what about that? Or, or what if this would have happened? God is very much involved in everything. And we're going to see that even through the fall. God very much knows. God is not surprised by it. It wasn't in going, well, let's see here. Let's go to plan B or C or all the way down to the line. God knows all things. If he doesn't, then he's not God. And this is God we're talking about, the one true God. So he not only knows all things, he's in control of all things. He's present in all things and in all places at all times. And he's powerful and more powerful than anything else. Why? Because everything comes from him. Now, when we look that God creates and he sustains that everything is made and held together by the hand of God, what about the devil? Who made him? God. How about those who would become fallen angels? The demonic horde that seeks to destroy your life and even fights against you now. God. However, they fell, didn't they? God made, God made good. And things were good. But where any of God's creation has the opportunity to rebel, they do so. Not all, but some. And this is why we see today that there are some who come to church and who get saved and follow the Lord and love the Lord, but not all. And you can even narrow her down a little bit further and all those who have a little asterisk in a directory or something or a membership, some come, some are truly born again, some are truly discipled, but not all. But God is not surprised. God will not be mocked forever. I want to move forward here and know we're not going to get through everything. We already knew that. It was done in purpose, though. Verses 2 and 3 are going to give us a wealth of things, not about day 7 specifically, but about the rest of the Bible. I would say that if you can understand the first 12 to 15, you know, if you can understand Genesis, if you break it down even further, if you can understand Genesis chapters 1 through 15, you've got the rest of Scripture. And you can even boil it down if you've got chapter 1, you've got chapter 2, you've got, you got everything. You've got what you need. As we're going to see in chapter 3, we've got every major doctrine in the Bible. Every doctrine that is studied or, or taught, it is found here in these words. That's why Genesis is so critically important, not just to defend those mean old atheists who are coming against Ken Ham and the, the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum up there, but rather so that we, you and I would know and trust God more so that we might know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to communicate ourselves because that's the part that we often miss. Most Baptists don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe it. And they definitely don't communicate it. And that's the sad truth. If we were to ask our average churchgoer, why are you saved? Or what, uh, what, uh, uh, tell me about this doctrine. 
Most going to go, well, I, I don't know, uh, uh, so-and-so said this, or grandmama said this, or preacher said this. And I don't care about what any of those things say, especially mine. I want you to be able to go, God said this, and so that's what I believe, and that's why I believe it. Now, I've got to be able to communicate it. Because it's our job not to just know what we believe and why I believe it for ourselves, but so that way we might pour it into others who don't know what they believe, who don't know why they believe it, who are without God, without Christ, without salvation, without hope, without forgiveness, without relationship, without restoration with God, that without a, a future home to be with Him. They don't know this God that we know. That's why it's so critical for us to study the Scripture for ourselves, mind you. Our own personal responsibility to know what we believe. It is not enough to say, well, I believe whatever our church's you know, doctrinal statement or statement of faith says, you know, because it, it's pretty good, you know. So whatever it says, I'm sure it's fine. Now, I'm not asking us all to have up a written statement for our own selves to say, if someone asks you, well, hold on, let me, let me turn here, uh, you know, Article 3, Section 4. Okay, here's what I believe. But what we should have in our hearts so know what we believe about Christ, what we believe about God, what we believe about the Scripture, what we believe about sin, what we believe about man, what we believe about these key major doctrines. You say, well, that's too much for me. I, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a deacon. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I, but you are in Christ. Therefore, you are called to know Him and to not just know the things about Him, but to know why you believe that. That is the, the part of going from the head knowledge about God to the heart knowledge, to the why, putting the faith in practice, and then being able to communicate it with our hands and our feet and our mouths, and to tell the world who this God is that we believe in, that we trust in, who has saved us and, and redeemed us. Now, verses 2 and 3. We begin in here, and this is probably about as far as we'll go. I want to ask you this question here. What does God make on day 7? Nothing. All right, not a trick question. All right, y'all are good there. What does God do? Rest. All right, so y'all had that. Y'all right, more confident on that one. Good job, good job. Verses 2 and 3 show us that he rests. Now, when you rest, what do you do? All right. When I think about the word rest, I think about my dad, and I think about <laughs> your dad, too. Because every dad is the same. What every dad does when they get home from work or mowing the yard, and they're wearing their blue jean shorts and white new balances and have the grass stains, they kick back in the recliner, and what do they do? Or in their, or in their special spot, right? That's their seat. Every, every dad has that seat right? That's where they go to, right? That's their seat. And they go and they sit there, and it does not take them long to sit there. And what happens? They're, no, they're not asleep. They're resting their eyes, right? But you and I know resting as, as sleep or a slumber or as a, a total lack of work. Why? Why do you rest? You rest because you've just done work and you're preparing to do more work, right? Makes sense. Tonight, you're going to go home. You're going to Rest. You might, you know, I'm, I'll get you home for Jeopardy, but not Wheel of Fortune. But you'll get home. You'll watch a show or two. You'll, you know, uh, eat a bowl of ice cream. Whatever you do at night, you, you'll put on your pajamas and you'll go and you'll rest. You'll sleep for the night. Why? Well, you can wake up and do it all again tomorrow. Now, if you're retired, praise the Lord, every day is a Sabbath day for you, right? <laughs> now, that's when the real work begins, isn't it? Right? That's where life really goes. But, but for God, let's bring it to Him. God rests. Does God get tired? No, but he rested. No, God does not get tired. I want to give you this. Does God get tired? Was he exhausted? Did God really not work? 
Long answer. Right here in your booklet, all right? And I put this here for a reason, all right? Long answer. Did God get tired? Does God, re- does God get uh, sleepy? Does He get overworked? Long answer is no. Short answer, no. All right? There you go. You're welcome. Keep that in your notes, all right? One day it might be famous. Who knows? I doubt it. <laughs> I hope it's not. What is implied here is that God was weary from his epic creative what is not implied is that God was weary from his epic creative acts for the creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not nor is weary according to Isaiah 40:28 rather his creative work was complete in toto in toto is latin for in total in completion it is it is finished it is completely finished isn't it I, i'll turn briefly i wasn't going to it's not my notes i'm the worst i swear all right, Isaiah 40 tells us this. I want to read a few of these verses for you. So that way you know, you get the real big picture of this. Here, as Isaiah is being given this from the Lord, he is telling him what to say. He's telling him about himself. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? <clears throat> Hath it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. It's not flat. Upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Isn't that interesting? It spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. What does that mean? A, a dwelling tent is the same word that we use for tabernacle. The tabernacle was used to worship God. The tabernacle was where God resided for the children of Israel in the wilderness and, and for, for years as they worshiped the Lord. What else do we find then in John chapter 1? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same word used for tabernacle. What do we find then in Revelation chapter 21? That we shall dwell with Him and He shall dwell with His people. He shall be their God and be with His people, be in their midst. A tabernacle. It's the idea to spread them out as a tent to dwell in. The universe is the dwelling place of God, if you will. How God had made everything in Genesis chapter 1 it's to represent and to demonstrate the heavenly temple of all of who God is, His heavenly presence, all of His power, all of His might, all of His character, all of who God is. And it says, that bringeth the princes to nothing, and He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they, all, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Their stock shall not take root in the earth. And He shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? As he says in Genesis later on, we'll see with Abraham, who is like God? Who is like Him? There's none. He says, lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of His might, for that He is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not faint. Here, I want us to understand that we find, and this is where we'll, where we'll stop tonight. When we see thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and that God ended His work which was made, because that He rested from all His work which He created, it is not that God goes, Phew, I am wore out. What a week. We're going to see next week why He gives and includes this day of rest. But the day of rest for God is not that He kicks back in His recliner and falls asleep and ceases to work, because if He did, we don't get to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 or 4 or 5 or 6 or anything else. God doesn't stop working, but rather He doesn't create something new. Why? Because thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Perhaps some of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture are found in chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. That special word, finished, brought to completion. The God who began a good work will bring it to completion. This is pregnant with the idea that there's going to be a day of completion. A day of ultimate rest, as we'll deal with next week. And this points to something even more specific. This wonderful phrase, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested, as we'll see for us. What we find is this beautiful picture that points to Jesus. Jesus did such work in his ministry, and there were so many times where he did not even have time to rest. There were the people pressing against him, coming to find him as he was trying to pray and to get a moment to himself physically weakened. As he worked so hard in prayer the night before his, uh, the night of his betrayal, as he's working so hard in prayer, praying what we would see, the high priestly prayer of John 17, sweating as it were great drops of blood. Father, let this cup pass from me. And nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And a few short 12 hours later would be not in a garden praying, would not be around his disciples, would not be eating or drinking or making merry, but rather would be on a cross, stuck between two men who deserve that cross. With his last breath, would cry, it is finished. What was finished? The work was accomplished. And as we see in Genesis 1, chapter 1, we see days 1 through 6. Day 7, God looks and says, it is finished. And then he rests. He doesn't create anything new. Jesus dies on the cross, is put into the grave, and on the third day raises from the dead. And I would say that somewhere in between there, there's a rest. There's a rest, not from his work of being God or Him ceasing to be God, but rather in the sense that what He accomplished on the cross was perfect and complete and entire, and that as God in day seven has nothing new to make, Jesus has no more to offer. Why? Because the offer has been made. The veil has been torn in two from top to bottom, and now man can get to God through what Christ has done. And He would burst from that rest in the grave on that glorious day that we celebrate every Easter morning. And every time that we meet and gather on the Lord's day to worship Him and we look to the cross and we know it is finished. But it means that the rest is coming. 
But right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, preparing a place for you and I, waiting to get his bride, the church, home, that you and I too, after our work is complete, for about six days, if you will, and then we too can rest with the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you for the truths that we find here in the Scripture. Lord, we see so much more in this, and there's such a depth. God, may we never grow tired of studying your word or grow so complacent or apathetic to where we just go through the motions. You are a God who did all these things for our good and your glory. And Lord, help us to see both of those things, to see how good you are and faithful you are to us, who certainly don't deserve either one of those things. And that we might be pointed to you and to see your glory and that we might proclaim your glory throughout this world, that we might do the work that you've called us to do, that one day we too might rest in you and with you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. Guard our hearts and our minds as we go from this place and that you would use us in a mighty way. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.